Hey there, everyone. So glad you decided to join us this evening. And I'm just going to stop and say thank you, Nassim. Those were such sweet words. I hope I live up to all of that. Anyhow, I'm just so glad that you guys have joined us for midweek. As a church, we're in this season of walking through the wisdom literature of the Old and New Testament. Last week, you got to hear Christina talk about Psalm 8 and share about the majesty of God. Tonight, we're going to look at Psalm 15 and talk about the holiness of God. Scholars have said that this psalm is written in the wisdom literature style, and so for that reason, it is called a wisdom psalm. It is one that gives us instruction on how to live life, a life of wisdom and holiness before God. I hope you have your Bibles, because this is Bible study, and we're going to jump into the text in just a second, but let's pray together first. Father, thank you for your word Thank you for instructing us in holiness. I pray, God, that as we come to your word, we do it open, ready to hear how you want to speak to us. I ask, Lord, that we would not only be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Bless the words that come out of my mouth and the word, the ears of the hearers to hear my words, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first we're going to start out reading Psalm 15 together. It will be on your screens as well, so follow along. Lord, who may dwell in your secret tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind who lends money to the poor without interest, and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Well, that, that's only five verses and quite power-packed, but let me give you the backdrop of Psalm 15. This is a time of celebration, arrival of the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem after 20 years of being outside of Jerusalem. Now, I can't give you all the details about that, but if you'd like to study a little bit more on that, you can go to 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6 and 2 Samuel chapters 5 through 6. This is a great time of celebration. It's a big deal because the Ark of the Covenant held sacred articles of the Jewish people. So you have the Ten Commandments that are in there and the rod of Aaron, his staff that budded, he was the first high priest. And then you have manna, the provisional food that God gave his people their 40 years walking through the desert. So there are all these sacred articles in there. But what's most important to the people of Israel is that the ark represented God's presence with them. So this is a returning, not only of sacred articles, but for them, a return of God's presence to dwell among his people. The psalm begins with a question, and this question is the kind that someone going to the priest seeking entrance into the temple would ask, what do I need to do to be allowed in to enjoy the presence of God? Well, let's take a look at what the psalmist says again. The question is, who may dwell in your secret tent or who may live on your holy mountain? Okay, so we hear the words live and dwell and we think residence. But what this is saying is these are metaphors for communion with God. So when the question is being asked, this is not about whether or not this person is, you know, part of the family of God, but this is about 
is this person ready? Are they consecrated to step into the holy place? So consecration, what the priest would often say to the person is, go get cleaned up and then come back. So cleaned up, these cleansing rituals were extensive, so much more than just washing your hands for 20 seconds the way we have to be doing these days. But when they thought of this, when the priest would say this to them, you notice that the psalmist doesn't go to a priest. He goes directly to God and asks this question, God, who may come into your space and enjoy communion with you? So while God looks at our outside, he's more concerned with our hearts. So you'll see a lot of what he says goes to the conscience of the person. But before we get into that, let's take a look briefly at what this hill is. This hill is Zion. Zion is a hill in Jerusalem, and God, true to form, doesn't choose the most majestic or highest mountain in Jerusalem. And how do I know that? Because in Psalm 68, verses 15 and set through 16, it says here that, why are you jealous, O mountains of Bashan? So Bashan was a much more majestic mountain, large and high and lifted up. But Zion is given special treatment simply because it is the mountain where God chooses to dwell. It is superior because, as Psalm 2.6 says, Zion is God's mountain. Psalm 135.21 tells us that Zion is where God dwells in Jerusalem. And Isaiah 8.18 tells us this is where the God Almighty lives. It's clear that approaching Zion is approaching the most holy place of God. The tent or the holy hill is interchangeable language for describing that focal point where Israelite worship took place. And though God is omnipresent, able to be everywhere all at the same time, he chose to give a specific place where his people could come and meet with him. And God, like the priest, is giving requirements to the worshipers for entrance into this most holy place. Remember, this ark is a, the, the return of the ark is this blessed time of jubilation and excitement. And sometimes amid all the excitement, people can forget who they're approaching and how to do that with reverence and respect. And so I don't know about you, but sometimes even in my excitement and familiarity with God to come to church and be with friends, I sometimes forget about the majesty and holiness of God and how to approach him with reverence. And because we don't live in a monarchy, it might sound strange to talk about requirements to approach. But can I just say, God is the king of kings. And thinking about this psalm, it is a psalm of David. During this time of the procession of the Ark of the Covenant up the hill, he was said to have danced in a way that was so unashamed, undignified as a king. And yet I can promise you this, his subjects the next day would certainly not have had any less reverence for him when they approached his presence. So as a writer of this psalm, the king of Jerusalem at the time, David is telling them that there is an etiquette with which we approach the king of kings. This psalm outlines for us just what holiness what the holiness of God demands, what is required to enter his presence. This psalm gives us five things to think about as we consider approaching God. Our conduct, our speech, the company we keep, the integrity of our vows, and how we handle our money. Let's take a look at our conduct. Verse two, those whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous. 
Okay, you may hear blameless and may think perfection. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about someone whose heart is marked by focusing on what pleases God. This is what we hear in the New Testament as the phrase above reproach. That means above accusation. So that even if someone were to level an accusation at you, that it would be found out to be a lie. That they would come up and they would level all these things at you and they would be found to be false. So when you hear the walk is blameless, this is the basics of righteous living before God and man, doing what's right, not doing what's wrong. Now, I know we live in a time today and in a society where what's right and wrong is relative. Well, that's not true with God because God never changes. And so what it takes to be comfortable in his presence, to be in the place where he resides, is what it means to be righteous. And because he doesn't change, what it means to be righteous, to be a life focused on what desires, what our desires are, focused on pleasing God, we have to know that he still requires that of us today. Having an honest relationship with God and others, our conduct matters to God as we come into his presence. Next, our speech. Let's take a look at the second half of verse two and into verse three. Who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, and who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others. You see, righteousness and a desire to please God shows up in our speech. The things that we say should be truthful. Okay, so I'm gonna walk you through a couple of old sayings, and this first one is talking out of both sides of your mouth. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I know it's a strange saying, but here's the thing. You probably know some people who have ever done this, but it's people who are always trying to land in the right place with the way that they say things, trying to curry favor with people. Like they don't tell the whole truth about something. Like if they did something wrong, they're gonna say this to one person and then that to another person so that nothing that happens negative sticks to them. Like they don't have to be accountable for it. So trying to curry favor with one person while trying to potentially get someone else to own the blame for what they did wrong. That's what this is kind of talking about. And then there's the slur and the slander, spreading gossip, rumors, disparaging another person's character. This leads to another old saying, if you don't have anything nice to say, then how about just not saying anything? <laughs> That's an option. Because the truth is, is, if someone is as negative as you know them to be, that will come out eventually. But what this scripture is telling us is, if we take just a little piece of information that we know, and it gets blown out of proportion, and we don't even really have all the facts, what we're doing as a child of God is being an initiator or a carrier of that kind of conversation. And God says, that's not to be true of his people. We are to be truthful in our speech and look for the right things to say about people. And then if we don't have anything nice to say, to just be quiet and pray. If we wanna please God, we're welcomed or to be welcomed into his holy place, we have to think about our conduct and make sure that it's blameless. And then our speech, that it is truthful. Next, our company, the company we keep. This matters to God. Let's take a look at uh, verse four, it says, who despises a vile person, but honors those who fears the Lord. Okay, so one more saying. You've heard it said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. 
And then you also have maybe heard bad company corrupts good character. So can I tell you that last one, that bad company corrupts good character? That's the only one that's in the Bible. All the rest of those, not in there. But they sound really good because they've been around a long time. But the whole point of this is that reputation by association was a big deal in the ancient day. Who, was who you were allowed to keep company with or who you were allowed to keep company with you mattered. It's why in Jesus' day, he got called out for hanging out with sinners so much. But here's the difference between a vile person and a sinner. So sin is never okay, but a vile person is okay with their wickedness. They are comfortable in it, not desiring change, and their heart is hardened to the things of God. They have no desire to honor God with their life. When Jesus came, the reason he hung out with sinners is he was giving them an opportunity to change. And so the psalmist speaks here of the vile person, someone that a righteous person should not even consider hanging out with. We should surround ourselves with people who fear God, who have a desire to reverence him with their life and their speech. For us today, what does that look like? Who do we surround ourselves with? Now, this just isn't family, friends, roommates, classmates. This is even about the podcasts we listen to. This is about the music that we engage with about the blogs we read, the authors that we allow to influence our speech and our thought processes. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that everything that you listen to or read has to be strictly Christian. But what I am saying is for you to ask yourself, are these things helping you to engage with God and bring you closer to Him? Or are they causing you to question God's standards for righteousness? If they are, then you ought to question their influence in your life. God cares about the things that influence us. Next, our integrity. Let's look at that second half of verse four. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. A person of integrity is a person of their word. They can be counted on to keep their word even when it's not comfortable for them. A vow or an oath is something that is usually taken as a solemn promise to God. It's voluntary. It kind of goes like, hey, God, if you would do this, then I will do this. You know, as I was studying to teach tonight, one of the things that came up, one of the commentaries that I read was that vows are often made during a time of crisis, which, of course, made me think of the times that we're in. So I want you to be careful. Don't go making God any promises right now that you're not willing to keep when all this is over. <laughs> you know, just to be sure, the righteous are called to be careful of the promises they make because keeping our word matters. Our integrity of, our righteous, of a righteous person is to follow through on the promises they make even when the circumstances when it comes time to follow through on that, may not be to your advantage. That's when your word really matters. Okay, so let's recap. The holy God of Zion requires his people to be blameless in their conduct, careful in their speech, mindful of the company they keep, and to make vows with integrity. All right, now God is going to talk about how we use our money. Let's take a look at the first part of verse 5 who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. How we handle our money matters to God if we do it wisely and fairly. 
especially when it comes to those less fortunate. The scripture says, don't take advantage of the poor or the innocent who are in need of justice. In this culture, a person could need a loan and if they couldn't repay it, they would then sort of sell themselves into servitude as a bond servant to pay off a debt. So excessive interest could mean this person would be enslaved for a long time. People were never meant to be owned or property to other people. But even if that weren't the case as a bond servant, the problem with it is, is that someone could change the way that they relate to each other, their fellow citizens, just based on their indebtedness to them. So God built into the rules of his chosen people this thing called the year of Jubilee. Again, that's something that you could check out in Leviticus 25. But let me just give you a little background on it. So it's a time of debt cancellation. Property returned to those who put that up as collateral. But here's the thing. A poor person has nothing but themselves. And so they give themselves as a bondservant to another person. So this time of Jubilee means this person is set free. Everyone is given the opportunity for a fresh start. That's how God sees this time and how we use our money and how we help people. Because those chosen people, as they begin to ascend the hill of the Lord, may start to think, how have I treated those indebted to me? How have I made the money I've made? Have I done it honestly? And so as they approach the hill of God, how they gain their worth is important because they will be accountable to God, especially if they're desiring to give an offering or make a sacrifice. I hope it's becoming clear that approaching the holy God and desiring to spend time in his presence requires a great deal of introspection about the way we live in relationship to one another. Let's take a look now at the end of verse 5. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. So we guard our conduct, our speech, the way we live in integrity when we make vows, the way we use our money, the company that we keep. If we do those things, we will not be shaken. Here is what it is. This is an assurance that this kind of worshiper will always be welcome, that their place in the tent is secure. Now, this is not a promise that someone with great moral character will never experience hardship, but that their fate is not like that of the wicked who is promised permanent calamity. The righteous one will not be shaken by temptation or adversity, but rather their godly character will withstand the tests of life. The trials and the tribulations that will come, they will be able to stand in the face of those because they have been declared righteous. Now, okay, you may hear the word righteous and think, but scripture tells us no one is righteous. So then you probably know where I'm going with this. Jesus has made all believers righteous. If we stand in his perfection. Just like that year of Jubilee, Jesus has given each and every one of us the opportunity for a fresh start, to be a new creation. Our debt has been canceled. We are set free from our bondage to sin. And the Father sees us in the righteousness of the Son. All our shame has been removed when we put our faith in Jesus. We don't have to even fear being refused entrance into God's holy place 
because we are not simply offering our good deeds. What we are doing is standing in the perfection of Jesus. What I want to make sure to make clear, though, about this ascending the holy hill and entrance into the tent is that this is not about salvation. You see, the children of Israel were already chosen. They had a relationship as children of God, and that was secure. But the ability to be a true worshiper, one who worships in spirit and in truth, that was based on these standards that God has given in his word. Yes, there is a such thing as grace and mercy, but we don't want to take those for granted. Instead, we want to honor God by living as holy representations of a holy God because there is a world that is watching who needs to know about this God of majesty, of mercy, of grace, and of holiness. I hope you have come away from this time with a better understanding of God's holiness and how our approach to him must always be one of reverence. Yes, to us believers, he is our father, and yet he is wholly other. He is the king of kings, and he commands our reverence. He deserves it. He is such a loving father. And so because of that, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. In his holiness, it still re requires grace for us to be accepted in his presence. Please remember that how you live matters and take that into account as you approach God's presence. In your groups, you will have the opportunity to go through some questions that will help you process all of this. And I hope that taking the time to walk through this wisdom psalm, Psalm 15, has given you much to consider. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for those who have joined us for the first time today. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are checking in on midweek and getting together with their groups. God, would you help us to realize that approaching you as our Father is such a privilege. Thank you, God, for your righteousness, your holiness. And we thank you for Jesus that we get to stand in his perfection. And it's because of him that we get to approach you without shame, without guilt, without fear. I just pray your blessing over our groups as they go into discussion and ask that you would just help people to not use this as a way of beating themselves up, but that they would use it as a way of understanding what you require and then doing that so that they can enjoy being in your presence with you. We thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks everyone for joining. Hope you had a great time being here and we'll look forward to seeing you soon.